Hello, beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to the Colorism Healing Podcast, where our goal is to learn, transform, and resist. What you're about to listen to is the audio version of my weekly live streams on Instagram and Facebook, which you are welcome to join every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central Time. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome everyone to another weekly live session with me, Dr. Sarah Webb of Colorism Healing. I'm really excited about this week's um, live session because we're doing an open Q&A. So I wanted to kind of take the pressure off to always have to come up with a new topic. And so I figured I'd let the audience direct the agenda or guide the agenda for this week by submitting questions that I can answer or address this week. Um, so we'll get into that today. I have three questions that I'm going to answer. Um, submitted in the comments and DMs. There was one older question that I couldn't find because you can't search through old Instagram messages. So I'll have to find a way to relocate that question. Um, so I'll save that for a, a different Q&A. But this week I had three pre-submitted questions. And then, of course, anyone who's watching live is more than welcome to submit a question while we're on here. You all do that anyway. You all tend to submit questions if you have them. So <laughs> in the chat, in the live chat. So feel free to do that as well. But I will start with the three that were pre-submitted. So before we get into that, y'all know my signature introduction is to say hello. Tell me where you're watching from and also what the weather is like where you are. So the sun just came out. We had like a really quick rain shower, but the sun has been out most of the day, which is a huge relief for me because we've had like storms and clouds and rain for over a week. Um, hey, how you doing? Welcome back. Um, spicy one. I like the way you spell spicy. Hi, Trisha. Hello, welcome. So we'll be getting into this Q&A shortly. A few other announcements. Um, as I was going through my Q&A, I realized that not everyone knows, even though people follow me, not all of you know that I offer coaching services. So I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching that's open to anyone of any race, any shade, any gender. Um, and I also am offering group coaching, which is going to start in August. So I have a small group of women and we set a start date for late August. But I still have some spaces available and... Even better, I have two scholarships thanks to the Anti-Racism Accountability Coalition that donated um, some funds so that people who were on the fence about participating in the program, the group coaching program for financial reasons, can partake in the benefit of that without having to um, pay the cost for it. And also I'm available for speaking and all that good stuff as well. All right, let's see who else has hopped on. Um, hot, hot, hot in Italy. <laughs> yeah, hot, hot, hot. My computer is getting hot. <laughs> the fan is on. Oh, it messes up the sound for the uh, playback, which I don't like, but I still haven't figured out how to not make it overheat when I'm live on Facebook. Um, T. Trisha says, here in the Bronx, hot and humid, 95, dang. <laughs> That is hot. Yes, hot and humid for sure. Um, hot, Latin, nice and sunny from the running man. Oh, cool. Um, Tampa, Florida, 90 and cloudy. So Florida is actually, I mean, New York is actually hotter than Tampa, Florida right now today. 
Um, and I'm sure Tampa is, is humid as well. Got to be humid in Florida. Um, where are you? I am in Springfield, Illinois, the Midwest, like central Illinois. So I'm in the middle of the middle. <laughs> uh, hey, Larenalta. Oh, hey, Laren. How you doing? Yay. So I did a podcast with um, Laren, who just joined in the little chat. I don't think it's out yet. I think you said it'd be out in like August or something. I did it already come out. I can't remember. <laughs> Remind us of when that podcast is coming out, but definitely check out her page and her podcast. Um, all right, so let's jump into these questions, these three questions. So if you're just hopping on, I'm doing a live Q&A today. I have three questions that were submitted prior, so I'm going to start with those. But if any other topics or issues come up, you can also leave comments. You can also leave your own responses to the questions. So as I pose these questions and as I respond to these questions, you can also offer up your own advice or your own responses to the questions, and I'll read those out loud as well, okay? Um, I love your earrings. Thank you. So these are more Hippie Chick Joy earrings. They have, they're made out of like composition paper, and they say writer on them, so right up my alley. Um, Portland, Oregon, 82, going up to 95 today. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's only noon in Portland, so y'all still have time for the temperature to rise. Welcome, Cultivated Healer. Cool and overcast in England. Okay, I like that. Is that Eddie Goslin? Fine art. Fine art. I'm going to check out your fine art page, see what kind of fine art you do. All right. <laughs> I love meeting everyone in the, uh, in the chat, in the live chat, and seeing where y'all are from. Okay, so the first question I want to look at today is a really, really good one. And I didn't prepare in advance, right? So this is open Q&A, so I won't have like definitive answers to these questions. I didn't, you know, take time ahead of time to like research these in super detail. I didn't take a lot of notes like I usually do. So I'm kind of doing like an impromptu response to these questions. So keep that in mind. But I might flag some of them to go into more detail and to be more specific and more precise and more researched in future live sessions. So the first question came in a DM and I'm gonna summarize it, paraphrasing the question. It says, what advice do you have for dark-skinned mothers raising biracial children? And I think that's a great question. And um, Midwest Mixed, I think, just posted or recently posted an article, reposted an article about a dark-skinned woman who was explaining why she was raising her biracial children as non-black, right? So raising them not to identify as black individuals. And so that's an interesting article to take a look at in addition to some of the kind of practical things that I might offer. But, you know, with that question, um, the person who asked it was already anticipating the comments, right? The comments are going to come like, is that your child? Whose child is that? And, you know, asking, well, what race is the father? And um, even, you know, questions about from family members or other people about the child having good hair or um, wondering who whose eyes they're going to have, right? And all this, the featureism and all that stuff that comes, even when it's two parents of the same race, people have those kinds of questions about what the child is going to look like and what is their hair going to look like. And so when there's um, an interracial relationship and a child is being born, those things are even more at the forefront of people's minds and people oftentimes are not considerate 
right? And making their comments or in asking their questions, people can make assumptions or just kind of not be considerate to the person's feelings. And then also people can be outright colorists, right? <laughs> so, um, and I think interracial relationships are interesting, but specifically with this mother being darker skinned and having 4C hair, right? Because there are some interracial relationships where the, the person, um, well, the two people might look more alike, if that makes sense. So people can be two different races and still look kind of similar, still have similar complexions. You know, the hair texture might be kind of similar. Um, but for this particular person who posed that question, they look very different than their partner, right? And so they're, they're likely to also look very different than their child, right? There's no guarantees with genetics. <laughs> um, although some people would like that, you know, we have scientists working on that apparently. Um, okay, so I think one thing I would recommend is to find your people, right? And I didn't, I didn't clarify, you know, if the child is already here or if she's pregnant or if they're planning to have kids. So depending on, well, I guess this applies at any stage, right? But identifying your people, identifying the people in your circle who get it, who understand, and who are ready to help you. Um, and let's see. I'm looking to see if I can just turn off my Facebook because this fan is bothering me. I don't know if y'all can hear it, but it's, it's bothering me. Um, so find the people. It could be friends and family on both sides, right? So family and friends from the husband and from the mother um, and then mutual friends that you all have. And then plan strategies with those people, right? So talk, talk openly about to, to these people about your concerns. And, it, and depending on your network of people, there might only be one other person that you feel you can talk to openly, right? Hopefully there are more. Um, people that you feel like you can express your concerns and let them know up front, these are the kind of things, these are the kind of comments that I'd like to avoid when my child gets here. These are the kinds of questions that are not okay to ask my child or to ask me or to ask, you know, the father of my child. Um, and just be very open and upfront with those people. And then even, especially if you have allies, like people who want to show up for you and like support you and know that colorism is a huge thing in family, family and friend circles, I would also say, you know, strategize a way for them to speak up, especially if they're present, like at the family reunion, right? Call that one cousin who's, who's on your team and is like, yeah, we're going to nip that colorism stuff in the bud this year, right? And so strategize with that cousin, like, okay, if we hear aunt so-and-so telling her so-called jokes, if we hear, you know, uncle so-and-so, you know, making comments about hair texture, we're both, this is how we're going to tag team that conversation together, right? And so doing that with people um, that you see as comrades or, you know, co-conspirators in the fight against colorism. The second thing I would say is to develop strategies for everyone else. <laughs> so all those other people who don't get it and all those other people who will be asking the rude questions and who will be making assumptions and exposing their colorism, um, also plan strategies for them, right? Um, you can pre-plan, you know, responses. And if you've been with, this, with these people long enough, you can anticipate the kind of things, right? And even in the question that she asked, um, she was already, you know, listing things that she would probably have to encounter or deal with. And so I would 
suggest making a plan for that as well with yourself. So that could be an exit strategy, like a literal exit, exit strategy. So a way to end a conversation really quickly or a way to a default excuse to leave the room, a default excuse to leave the event or the party, right? And I always tell dark-skinned women that you don't have to bear the onus of explaining and educating people, right? Like you can very much just protect your own energy and say, I'm going to kind of disengage from this conversation, especially, you know, in, in settings where they're not conducive to actually learning or listening or, you know, hearing something new. Um, and then if you are, you know, wanting to stay at the event, maybe planning um, ways to change the subject or ways to change the conversation or just a default explanation, a default request, right? And unfortunately, because I've experienced this too, so it's good to be prepared for this. Unfortunately, there are people who will be intentionally antagonistic. There are people who will intentionally be rude, who will try to push your buttons, who will try to say things to upset you. And that's with colorism, but y'all know that's with life. All for whatever reason. Like there are people who want to antagonize. And so there's just not much advice I can give to that other than boundaries and like keeping your distance. Um, but specifically with, you know, colorism, even just a default phrase like, well, I think all hair is good hair, right? Or um, the child is going to be beautiful regardless, right? And maybe even more clever sayings than that. But there are also questions, right? So a part of your strategy could be to ask a question. For example, why does that matter to you? Why is it so important for you to figure out what the child's hair texture is going to be? Or why do you care so much about the size that her nose is, right? Or who she's going to look more like? Why does that matter so much to you? Is that going to make her um, more valuable in your eyes, right? Like if you ask that question really directly, will you love her more if she, you know, has blonde hair instead of brown hair, you know, or something like that? Like just ask a question, like put people on the spot, right? And that might, you know, be enough to disarm them. Um, and then two other things for that first question about a dark-skinned mother raising a biracial child. Okay, so I think I am going to end my live Facebook. Sorry, Facebook, but this fan, I have to figure this problem out. And I don't see any viewers on Facebook, so I'm going to pause and do that for a second. Okay, <laughs> hopefully the fan cools off soon enough. All right, um, and then I see a lot of comments coming in, so I'll review those as well. Um, prepare to have conversations with your children early. So start early, you know, talking about skin tone and what it means and the beauty of it and the beauty and the diversity of it, right? And be very open with your children about the fact that their parents are two different races and what that might mean and let them know the kinds of you know, things they might face in the world um, and work with work, work your strategies with them as well. So if y'all are out together, right, if you're out shopping with your children and someone asks a question that's rude or imposing or, you know, what is your child mixed with or, you know, any other rude thing or thing. And it doesn't have to be intentionally rude, but if it catches you off guard in such a way that it feels rude, then that's what matters, right? Being able to then debrief with the child and say like, oh, this is what happened. And 
how did you feel about that, right? This is how it made mommy feel. How did, what did it make you think about? How did it make you feel to hear someone ask that question? And then the last thing I have to say for you, my dear, who asked about this question, but anyone else who this might apply to, is um, just continue to cultivate radical self-love unapologetically. I think that's all of us, for all of us, that's our greatest defense in the face of rude comments, in the face of colorism, is that radical self-love. But for yourself to be able to process and deal with and cope with the colorism that you're going to continue to experience, right? That's the problem. We talk about colorism healing. It's not like this isolated thing happened in the past and now I'm healing from it, right? We have to heal from colorism while colorism is still happening, like while it's still going to happen in the future. Um, and so part of healing is becoming resilient in the face of future colorism experiences. And so radical self-love, I recommend The Body Is Not An Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. So that's where I've been, why I've been using that phrase lately. And then let your children see that. Let your biracial children see their dark-skinned mother loving herself unapologetically, loving her skin, loving her hair, loving her features, loving her body, right? Let, the, your, let your children witness that dark-skinned Black woman being completely and deeply and fully in love with herself and then let everyone else around you see it too let the family see it let the friends see it um let your husband see it right and everything else okay <laughs> i need to turn on my ac in here so the second question i have two more to go let me see what comments you all left um I would love to read that article. Yes. Um, so Midwest Mixed, um, they posted it a few weeks ago. I did, I did not reshare it, so I can't send it to you. But And I don't remember the title of it, but the, it's reposted on that Instagram page, Midwest Mixed. And um, let's see. I like the idea of tag teaming. Yeah, tag teaming. Especially, you know, like we have a family reunion coming up in July. If there are any like colorist jokes, we can tag team on that, right? Um, why do you matter to see to you is a powerful question. Oh, yeah. Why does that matter to you? What color the child is or what their hair texture is like? Why is that so important? Radical self-love. You know it. Okay. So let me keep going. Hey, everybody that joins. <laughs> Late. So if you're just joining, I'm doing a Q&A. So I'm responding to questions that were submitted in advance, as well as any questions that people have here on the live. And I'm going into my second of three pre-prepared questions or questions sent in advance. Um, so a second question, and again, I'm paraphrasing. This was left in a comment by Nellie Alili. And they asked, how do I address dark skin discrimination without sounding like I'm against light skinned people? And so I love this question because I feel like it's the conundrum that everyone has. It's a tightrope that we all feel like we have to, um, that dark skinned people feel like we have to walk. And I, I say feel like we have to walk because there is one approach where you, you can choose not to walk that tightrope. You can just choose to speak your truth and let the chips fall where they may. So I will acknowledge that that is totally a valid option, right? Um, you standing up for yourself and speaking honestly about what colorism is and the negative effects it has on dark-skinned people without policing your own language, without um, sort of censoring yourself uh, is, a, is a valid approach. And I think 
to be honest, I think that's part of, that's one way to protect the status quo is to make dark-skinned people feel like we have to try really, really hard not to step on anyone's toes. So that being said, <laughs> a couple of strategies that I have for, you know, acknowledging that speaking out against colorism is not about being anti-light skin. Um, one, kind of what I was saying is get comfortable with being misunderstood or disliked um, or antagonized by many who will see it that way. So as you even, even, even as I have to be honest with you, even as you pick your words meticulously carefully and you scrutinize every phrase every conversation you ever have there will be people who think you're against light-skinned folks just by virtue of you having the conversation about colorism just by virtue of you saying that word there are people who will say this is you know against light-skinned people this is you know hating on light-skinned people that no matter how perfect you are in your delivery there, there will be people who perceive you that way. And so you have to just get comfortable with that. And that's why it takes courage. That's why it requires bravery and so much effort on the parts of dark-skinned women in particular to talk about colorism. A second thing, though, is to talk to light-skinned people. So I don't know exactly how you've gone about um, talking about or addressing dark-skinned discrimination in the past. Um, but... I think if, if what part of your goal, if part of your goal in that work or in that effort is to build a bridge with light-skinned people, is to have conversations with them um, about their privilege, about how, about what it's like to be, um, especially a black person, right, with lighter skin or to be a person of color with lighter skin. Um, because I think, you know, sometimes there's the belief that um, having light-skinned people as in the conversation or at the table is um there's no point to it people say there's no point in talking to light-skinned people about colorism because they benefit from it but i think that's precisely why we need to talk to them is because they benefit from it and they have perpetuated it <laughs> so um for the light-skinned people you encounter who are looking to learn, who are looking to engage, who are looking to hear your um, perspective and your insights, like actually talk to those people, right? Um, and the third thing is have conversations about what light-skinned people can do in the fight against colorism. So it's not, oh, we don't have anything to say or we don't want to have anything to do with light-skinned people, right? But say we are willing to build that bridge with light-skinned folks and here's how we need you to show up, right? Or here's how you can meet us halfway. Here's how light-skinned people can stand on by my side. Here's how light-skinned people um, can have more productive conversations with me as a dark-skinned woman or with other dark-skinned people. And so I think by folks by centering part of not centering but by including in the conversation right how light-skinned people can show up in productive ways or how light-skinned people can be allies or accomplices to dismantle the system of colorism um i think that's a way to acknowledge that you're not against light-skinned people you're just asking them to show up in a specific way right so it's an open invitation that is literally an invitation to invite light-skinned people in but here is um, 
here are some best practices for being at the table. Here are some best practices for being in the room or being in this community as a light-skinned person. Um, yeah, so I don't know how other people feel about that. Uh, white privilege and light-skinned privilege destroying their privileges asking a lot. Maybe. Because um, I think... Because I think about the ways that I'm privileged and it's not so much about destroying my privilege, right? Like I can't, um, I can't not be privileged by being able-bodied, but I can fight for a world where all bodies, regardless of how they function, where all bodies have access to space, right? And I don't feel like I'm losing because of that. I don't feel like I'm disadvantaged because there's an escalator or there's an elevator in every building, right? Like mandating that there are elevators in every building that have to be operating and functioning at all times does not in any way disadvantage me as a person who can take the stairs, as a person who can walk up, you know, 10 flights of stairs if I had to. Um, and so um, I've heard that a lot, right? That it's asking a lot for white people or light-skinned people or men, for example, to, you know, dismantle the systems that privilege them. Because you can still enjoy the fruits of your labor. You can still enjoy the life you've created for yourself in a way that doesn't um, inhibit or rest on someone else's oppression. Again, I think the, um, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, even looking at how um, using automatic doors, for example, the implementation of automatic doors it works for everybody, right? Like that's one example of how able-bodied people um, can build buildings, design buildings that work for everyone. And so I think light-skinned people can do the same. I think white people can do the same. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think, are there, are there going to be people who don't care? Yes, there will be people who don't care, but it, it's an excuse. I think it's an excuse to say, oh, well, the reason why they're not going to be held accountable is because they have too much to lose. And I'm, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. Because again, at the end of the day, a lot of philosophers and theorists would say that um, when, for example, everyone is healthy, we're all healthy. It's just like with the pandemic, right? With COVID-19. Because of the attitude of, well, we don't care as long as the United States is healthy. We don't care what's going on in these other countries. They could be sick. They could be spreading viruses, right? We don't care. We're just going to focus on what's happening in the United States because we're the best or whatever. Um, but COVID-19 proved to the world that we can't just look out for ourselves. We can't just look out for ourselves. We have to literally, literally for the survival of the human species, we have to make sure everyone is as healthy as possible. We have to make sure everyone has clean drinking water. We have to make sure everyone um, can get access to vaccines and can have, you know, um, doesn't, is not exposed, right, to things like malaria and, you know, all these like basic functions. The world really depends on us taking care of each other. Um, so again, just like white supremacy is ultimately destroying the planet for everyone, including white people, you know, colorism weakens all black people at the end of the day. And I talked about this in my um, Thursday email, my monthly email newsletter. I talked about how um, 
Colorism is white supremacy. And so this, the very same system that says white people are better is the same system that says light people are better. And so for light-skinned people who claim to hate racism, who claim to hate white supremacy, then you can't condone colorism if you claim to hate those other systems because they are one and the same. Um, great question on many fronts. I think the censorship is what keeps POC from having these convos openly. Definitely. Um, and I think censorship can happen for a few reasons. The censorship can happen because we're afraid to be judged. And then censorship happens based on this, like what this question is saying, we're afraid of how other people are gonna react. Like, I don't want other people to feel um, bad. I don't wanna trigger other folks. So I'm not gonna say what I'm really thinking. So it can happen because like, we don't want to be canceled or judged, but then we also censor ourselves to not, um, because we don't know what to say and we don't want to cause additional harm because we don't know what to say. Uh, let's see. More equality for others does not mean less equality for me. Yes, Sarah Best will. Um, white privilege and light skin privilege has material gains and destroying that system means destroying the means to those gains. Right, our lives are all too interconnected. Yeah. So white privilege and light skin privilege does have access to material gains, but dismantling those systems doesn't mean you won't have those, won't, doesn't mean you won't have access to that, right? So like white privilege means, so privilege is about what you gain, but it's also about what you don't have to experience, right? So if there's clean drinking water for all citizens, white people are not gonna go without drinking water, right? Because I think that, Belief is the reason why white people don't stand up to dismantle white supremacy or why light-skinned people don't stand up to dismantle colorism. Because it's almost like, you know, white folks are saying, well, we can't, you know, fight for all kids to be educated because then my child won't have the best quality education. And that's also a fallacy, right? These fallacies. And I think, honestly, the system wants us to think that the system is impenetrable. The system wants us to think that... This is the best way to do it. Um, a, a world where all children receive a world-class education, I mean, you're not getting less. <laughs> I just, I just want to emphasize, for anyone who's privileged, like, you're not, you don't have to get less just because other people are getting the same amount as you. <laughs> so, like, if I make $100 a week and someone who's disabled only gets paid $50 a week, Right. And then all of a sudden they start making one hundred dollars a week, too. Like nothing has changed about my one hundred dollars a week. <laughs> it's just that now it's equitable. I think. Yeah. The problem is when people want to hoard wealth to control. Right. For power or domination. But again, that's not um, the default. Right. I, I don't think humans have to inherently hoard or crave absolute power. Um, just because a few people have and some people do, doesn't mean that that's the way society has to be organized. Um, yeah, and we have to be able to imagine different realities in order to create them. We have to be, we have to be able to imagine the world other than what it currently is. And I've said this before too, right? Just because we can't imagine it doesn't mean it's impossible. Because our ancestors could not imagine 
you seeing me talk on a screen hundreds, thousands of miles away, right? I have some people watching from England. There was, you know, there was a long, 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 long era in human history where that was seen as impossible. And yet here we are today um, doing that very thing. Our ancestors could not have imagined the world as it currently exists. And so even if we can't imagine a different world, it doesn't mean a different world is impossible. And so hopefully, you know, the children who are just being born, right? The first question I answered, right? That biracial child who's being born and all of its cohorts, all of their cohort members, all of their comrades of different races and different classes and ethnicities, maybe they'll figure it out. Maybe they'll be able to imagine it, right? Maybe current generations are too crystallized in the current systems to be able to imagine anything else. But, you know, hopefully the younger generations can think of something <laughs> better than what we have. <laughs> um, and then I'll get to my last question, uh, which is similar to what we've been talking about, um, which, and this is specifically about, you know, African-Americans. I think that was the question and whether or not colorism or racism impacts us more, like which one, colorism or racism, which one impacts black people more? But I guess people of any race can answer, can ask that question as well. Um, see, T. Trisha says, and it's labor for dark-skinned folks to keep speaking up when white or light folks don't speak up. Yes, T. Trisha. Yes. So much. 100%. Yes. <laughs> um, it is. Because dark-skinned people did not create this problem. So why are we burdened with the responsibility to solve it alone? Like, why are we alone expected to end it? It's like black people did not create the problem of racism. And yet the world thinks that black people are the ones who need to solve it by themselves. Like, well, yeah, y'all are in quite a, quite a pickle there, you know, Hope, good luck with that. <laughs> um, global systems require coalitions of multiple groups. And you need people on the inside, you need people on the outside, you need people around the perimeter, you need people at the mezzanine, mezzo level, you need people at the helm, you need people in the background, we need people on all fronts. That's always been my philosophy. I've always been an all fronts, all fronts kind of person. Just like we need men, <laughs> we need cisgender men <laughs> to do what they got to do to end the patriarchy and sexism and rape culture. <laughs> All right. So the other question, oh, let me finish these comments. White light privilege thrives on the belief of scarcity. Oh, cultivated healer. Thank you. That is so well said. There is enough for all. Yes. So part of the legacy of the white supremacist delusion is the belief in scarcity. That is how the systems of racism, classism, sexism, ableism, um, heterosexism, that is why those systems persist is because people have been indoctrinated to believe in scarcity. And I think Brene Brown might talk a little bit about this in Daring Greatly or something like that. But that belief that we have to fight for resources, that, we have, that we're in a competition, the belief that we're in a competition with other people to be happy and to feel loved. 
and to be validated and to be able to eat and drink and sleep. That is the foundation. That is the bedrock of racism, white supremacy, classism, sexism, all of that, right? We have to hate each other in order to survive. I think that's a lie. I think it's a lie. I feel like so much of the world has been built on the lie of scarcity. I don't think we have to fight each other to survive. I think we can survive by collaborating with each other. But that's just me. <laughs> um, we live in a performance-based society. Someone is first and someone is last. Right, that's the society we live in, but that's not the society we have to live in, right? Like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, sure, that's how the world has been operating, but I'm here to change that, right? Like, people who are working to change that. Um, it doesn't have to stay that way because it wasn't always that way and it doesn't have to always be that way in the future. Um, so in terms of whether or not uh, racism or colorism impacts black people more, I think you have to take an intersectional approach to that question because I ask what kind of black person are you talking about? Because if we're talking about light-skinned black people, then racism impacts them more. <laughs> That question is easy for light-skinned black people. If we're talking about black men, especially cis gender black men, straight black men, heterosexual black men, um, it depends, you know? They, they might say racism, right? Uh, for me as a dark-skinned woman, I say colorism has impacted me more than racism on an interpersonal level. I think uh, even, this is important, even things that we attribute to racism are actually better explained by colorism. So even when we look at police brutality, right, then the, the killing of people like um, George Floyd, everyone thinks that's a racism problem. I think it's a colorism problem. So <laughs> that's my answer. Is I think half, probably half the things that we say are a racism problem are actually colorism problems. When we look at the wealth disparity and the, the wage gaps between white people and black people, it's actually not a wage gap between white people and black people. It's a wage gap between people with light skin and people with dark skin. So lighter skinned black people earn on par with whites. It's not a perfect match, but it's not like the gap that people talk about, right? When we talk about the gaps in education, and educational achievements and levels of education attained. And we say, oh, black children are, you know, not able to perform, not able to, are not testing as well. Their test scores aren't as high or they're not graduating at the same rate. When you look at the research, light-skinned black people are. Light-skinned black people are just as likely to attain as much education as whites and to achieve the same level of educational success. And so those statistics that we all are talking about as racism are actually based on color. And I think that's one of the biggest oversights in the current conversation about racism is that we think it's racism when it's really colorism. <laughs> I know people don't like me to say that. Folks don't like when I talk like that. <laughs> um, JV1710 says, I agree, sadly, because the light skin privilege impacts personal safety in the world. Yeah. And when you look at what the research shows is that it's not that George Floyd, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, um, the, I forgot the guy, he wasn't, he wasn't killed by police officers, but he was killed in Texas while he was out jogging, right? All those, those are dark skinned men, 
with like really broad features and they're also really tall and big and either big or like muscular in stature, right? Like I think the world needs to wake up and realize like it's not Jesse Williams, Terrence Howard, Barack Obama people who are most likely to get gunned down by cops. It is the Alton Sterlings. It is the George Floyds. It is the Michael Browns, the Philando Castiles who are seen as threatening, who are profiled for being seen as threatening. Literally, that's the research, that darker-skinned men are seen as more threatening than lighter-skinned men. And that's what justifies, in the eyes of the police, excessive force. I thought my life was in danger because Michael Brown was so threatening. Right? And... Um, When somebody was talking about driving in a car and being profiled, um, and they were saying how like once, you know, if I'm driving in a car and I have like, um, and I'm with like friends of different races, they were saying how what the police officer sees in the window um, in passing, right? In the, in the split second, in the second that it takes to drive by their car, drive past their car, that matters. When you're driving in your car, if they don't immediately notice that you're black, um, are they even going to stop you? Are you even going to be profiled? If you look like you might be, I don't know, a light-skinned Latina or um, Asian-American, right? Um, and then a lot of um, light-skinned people push back and say, well, I get stopped by the cops and I got stopped by the cops too. And like, that doesn't stop the cops from being, you know, racist towards me and that kind of thing. And no one says it stops it. It just says it's A, less likely to happen. And B, if it does happen, you're more likely to survive that encounter. Um, That's, I know that like a lot of people who follow my page already think along those lines, but for other people, like that's new to them to think about society in that way. That the Black Lives Matter movement was sparked um, as a race problem. And a large percentage of that is actually a color problem, right? Like sometimes it is racism, but a lot of times <laughs> it's, Colorism, and we just say racism. Um, uh, so you're not wrong. I looked at the pictures killed by police, and it's clear that the vast majority are darker skinned people. Yeah, and even if they're not like as dark as me, right? They're definitely not um, ambiguously raced, right? So they might be like a medium brown, right? Or they might be like, who's a celebrity everybody with? Like a Queen Latifah, right? Like, she's not, she might not be considered dark skin, but she's like darker, she's brown, right? Um, the vast majority, when you look at um, who police are most likely to kill, shoot. And that is for all races of people, not just African-Americans, right? So darker skinned Mexicans, darker skinned, um, Asians, right, are more associated with like gang violence and crime and criminal, act criminal activity um, and are seen as more suspect 
are more likely to be profiled and ask for their papers, right? A darker skinned Mexican is more likely to be profiled by ICE than a white passing or a white assumed Latinx person. You know, like a, a Latinx person who looks white um, or even just light, lighter skinned, even if they don't look white necessarily, uh, is less likely to be stopped and said, asked where they're from or where they're headed. You know what I mean? Um, thank you for that perspective. Would love to read more about this. Uh, yeah, so Sarah Bestwheel. I, ha I do have a blog post. Um, it's titled Stop Letting White Folks Off the Hook for Colorism. <laughs> and in that post, I list um, some research from the past decade, maybe the past 15 years, um, that talk about how white people perpetuate colorism. So it looks talks about the disparity in like um, employment and how... Uh, interviewers and employers are more likely to hire lighter skinned people of one race than they are to hire darker skinned people of that same race, right? And so again, a lot of the inequalities in society um, that we attribute to racism only, part of the reason we can't effectively solve these problems is because we fail to realize that colorism is a big factor in that problem. And then again, like even when you're talking about what affects people more, racism or colorism, I think for dark-skinned black women, um, we're more likely to say colorism probably than any other group of folks. Or even if you're looking at like a more homogenous like region in South Asia, for example, right? If there's like a town or like a city where there are a lot of South Asians who identify as, you know, native South Asians they're probably going to say colorism as well. Colorism impacts black people more. Um, but then also, <laughs> here's the catch-22, is that uh, a lot of the external racism exacerbates the colorism, right? So colorism is exacerbated or made worse, made more severe, has been made more severe, especially within the United States and elsewhere in the world because of racism. So that's the other caveat, right? So it's a sort of a vicious cycle. It's a chicken or the egg thing. Um, so in that way, racism is undergirding even the way we experience colorism. But I mentioned this before, we have to acknowledge the role that skin tone played in the designation of racism in the first place. Like we can't Excuse me. We can't continue to call ourselves black people or white people or brown people without acknowledging the literal association with color in de defining the races in the first place. Right. So that's all. Volumes, volumes have been written <laughs> by people more qualified to explain it than even myself. Right. Uh, so I'll update, I'll update um, my list of books on colorism too. Like I had this like um, ultimate list of books on colorism, but it's like maybe five years old at this point. So I definitely need to update that with all the new titles that have come out in recent years. Um, and when it's up, I'll share it in my stories and let y'all know. So people who really want to read the books and dig deeper, I'll be sharing some more resources in my IG stories. 
Okay, so those were my three questions that I got pre-submitted. Um, and I have a job interview. I am light. How can I find out about colorist practices in the company? Ooh, this is a great question. Um, oh, wait, I missed some comments. Uh, T. Trisha says, you previously talked about healthcare and dark skin more likely to receive proper care or pain management. Yeah, black people love to gaslight us when we call colorism. <laughs> We're all black. Yeah, Saint Com, Saint Come. Is it Saint Come or Saint Come? Uh, the we're all black, that's classic, 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 classic. I did a live on that, on that phrase specifically. Um, but teacher, I have a job interview. I am light. How can I find out about colorist practices in the company? Um, so I'm not sure about finding out before you get hired, but I think as I'm talking, I've never been asked this question before. So thank you. I think you, if there's a way to find out who's in management, who's in upper management, like if they have a website, if there's like a company website where they list the photos, um, or include photos of team of staff. That's one like just unofficial research you can do in the company and not only current employees, but if there's a way to see who their previous um, employers, managers, CEOs, executives have been or even just like leadership team leaders or project managers, consultants, like see who has worked for them and with them like currently and in, in the past and see if you notice any patterns yourself. And then also if the interview is in person, so this has not been the case for most people, but if the interview is in person, you walk through the building, right? If you're like working at a restaurant and you notice that all the hostesses, hostesses are, you know, light skins and only the only dark skin employers, you know, are working in the back, right? Are stocking shelves or un unloading trucks, then that's, you know, your visual, like your on the ground research of the company. Um, and then if you get hired and you take the job, then you'll have even more insight. You'll definitely have more insight. And in that case, I would say, you know, talk to whoever's in charge of like training um, and like workplace development and diversity, equity, inclusion, HR. Talk to them about, you know, what um, strategies or methods have they used to address, you know, create greater equity around colorism. Yeah, I like that question. Okay. Um, do you think Negro or Black is a dehumanizing, is dehumanizing and that's why we struggle to matter? Um, this is a great question. So I think words only have the meaning that we give them. Um, so as an English professor, uh, I, I'm very staunchly, very adamant about reminding people that all words are made up words. So when people say stuff like, that's a made up word, that's not a real word. And it's like, well, all words are made up words. Like at some point in human history, it was a person just like us who came up with these words, like regular everyday folks. Um, and dictionaries are only mirrors of the language being spoken by the general population. So keep that in mind. Like people treat dictionaries as the authority on language when dictionaries are merely a record of the language and lexicographers, the people who make dictionaries, they try to record to the best of their ability how the words people are using at any given time and how people are using those words, right? So keep that in mind. So when it comes to words like Negro or Negro and Black, um, 
people use those terms in negative ways and derogatory ways. And there's been a, lots of attempts to reclaim that. You know, black is beautiful, black and proud. I love being black. Um, but I think that is part of the premise of racism and anti-blackness and white supremacist delusion, right? Like that's part of that ideology or that framework is that the association with the words white. And so when white people came up with words to describe themselves, they came up with, they used words that already meant what they liked. It already, they, they, choose, they chose to call themselves white because white was already being used as a superior thing or superior idea. And so when they decided to call people black um, or whatever other races, you know, they were choosing those terms in part because of the skin tone, but also because of the associations with those words, right? And so it was, a, it was like the fact that those words already existed and were being used that way in English and Spanish and some other languages, I'm guessing, um, French and all that. Um, it was a convenient tool to then apply that to like the categories and the races that we're gonna call people. Um, and I think our efforts as black people to reclaim those words as sources of pride Right, like I'm wearing a black dress today because I like black. I like black. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, and even like the so my writing contest, you know, we're, we're I'm working on publishing the book now, and so a lot of the poems and stories talk about the beauty of the midnight sky and how the black sky is um, gorgeous and beautiful to stare at. Um, but when you look at what we're up against, right, in terms of the pervasive use of those terms. It is a tall order to um, override centuries of global associations with light and dark, black and white. And so I definitely, you know, I'm a firm believer that the language we use matters and the language we use influences our perceptions of the world. The language we use influences our perception of ourselves. And so I think what I would coach people to do, what I actually do coach people to do, is to rewrite the scripts about blackness, right? So I was, this is like me. This is like just how I see the world, okay? I notice like small things. So I was listening to like these um, acne commercials and they were talking about, yeah, you have to get rid of those stubborn, ugly, gross, nasty blackheads. And I was like, why don't we ever make commercials about the stubborn, ugly, nasty, gross whiteheads? It's like, those are grosser. Whiteheads, when, if anyone who's had acne or dealt with pimples or zits or whatever, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, all the commercials are about uh, getting rid of those problematic blackheads. And I'm like, but the whiteheads, like who's like, what do I do if I have this like really ugly, nasty whitehead, like white thing? And so that we're constantly exposed to that kind of language, right? That associates blackness with one thing and that associates, you know, white with something else. And so I think on a, on a group level, on a communal level, on an individual level, A, being conscious of that when it happens, because I think the conscious awareness of that is sort of like a shield 
from internalizing what's happening, but then also in our, the way we use language, being conscious to not fall back into those um, colloquial patterns, into those like um, for easy phrases, you know, those uh, cliche phrases that people tend to use around skin tone. Uh, yes, even the terms black versus brown is a means to discriminate. Yeah, 100%. I was doing a workshop um, for some teachers in Baton Rouge and I had them like write their initial reactions to um, black and brown, like just different words, like word association. And so one person, um, a white attendee, mentioned how, you know, they felt less tense. They felt less anxiety when they saw brown than when they saw black. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and even the uh, the thing when black people say, I'm not black, I'm brown. Look, I'm not black, I'm brown. I'm brown. That, you know, growing up, that was because of the stigma of being black, of being called black. Um, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and insights. Yes, I'm going to ask for a walkthrough if they make me an offer. Yay! Well, good luck on the interview. And hopefully it is a company that is very, very open and to diversity, equity, and inclusion of all types, and that they take that very seriously as a company, right? I think that's um, what I would hope, is not that every company is perfect walking in, but that they are very, very much like ready to walk the walk and not just talk the talk of diversity and equity. Um, so yeah, good luck on that. Let me send me a DM if you get it. I want to know. <laughs> Kimberly Kims, that sounds like a good idea. Also know that you are interviewing them just as they are interviewing you. Yes. Um, I've never asked for a walkthrough after being offered. I would say if you accept the job on your first day, ask for a walkthrough. Curious your thought about very light-skinned person being the one to do outreach to Black community. I've been thinking that while I have the skills and experience by accepting this role, I am doing a disservice in continuing the hidden practice of making white people be the face of the org. Um, yeah, I think that that is, that is a red flag, right? Um, without complete context, I'm not going to like make a definitive, decisive, you know, judgment on that, but it is a red flag that, um, a very, especially if it's a very light-skinned person that's being hired to do outreach to the black community. And especially if, um, right. So like looking at who else works in the company and like, Okay, so how there are so many factors, so many nuances in this, right? So if they're hiring you anew for this position versus, you know, they're looking at their existing employees to do outreach, right? Versus like hiring a new person to do outreach, then I think though even those would be two different scenarios. Um, and I think you have to be honest about that company and the people who are making that decision, right? Um, especially if you are one of the few black people there, like if you're like the only black person there and someone asked me this about a company that they're in, right? And how their director, their person in charge of diversity, equity, and inclusion was very, very fair skinned. Um, 
But yeah, I think your your question is spot on. And so I'm not I can't tell you whether or not to take that position because again, um there's also there have also been a lot of people who have leveraged their privilege in those positions in various ways. So that's something that, you know, I'm happy to talk more about at some point. Is if you do accept positions like that as a very light-skinned person, what's the what are some strategies to leverage your privilege and to for that one opportunity that you received, like how can you create two or three opportunities for a dark skinned person at that same level? Maybe like something along those lines. Um, I work in a predominantly white space and I do get that feeling a lot. I believe you have to follow your gut. I really don't like that, that the word. I understand we are rebranding it. I even notice people hesitate to call me black, but I insist because that that is what we are racialized. Mm -hmm. People do hesitate to call you black again because they, they know too how it's been stigmatized. Um, following you this past year has made me stop to think. Yeah, that's good. Yay, I'm happy to hear that. Because <laughs> I think that's where it starts. That's where all of it starts is everyone just pausing and being like, Right. Like even again, looking at um, the way society currently is, the status quo versus what it could be. It requires us to say, hmm, does this actually have to be that way? Hmm. Do we actually have to do it this way? Do we actually have to do it at all? Right. And that's like if you own a business, for example, and you're doing something and then somebody comes in and they're like, hey, have you ever tried this? system that's more efficient that costs you time and that saves you money and you're like you know what i never thought about that we can change what we're doing and how we're operating this business i think about like even in your personal life right like um stopping to think like do i actually have to take on this responsibility that i've assumed i was responsible for or can i like let that go do I have to continue thinking about myself in this way? Do I have to continue letting this person cross my boundaries or can I try something different, right? So I think that stopping to think, just pause to think is where it all starts. So super happy. And again, best of luck with the job interview and your career aspirations all around. And for anyone who's watching, um, I hope you all have wonderful careers as well. <laughs> Great career expansion and growth. Um, thank you so much for your time and your engagement and the fact that you took time out of your day to talk about colorism, to listen to a live stream on colorism is super, super important. And that's, you know, we need more of that in the world. So thank you. And I'm sorry to Facebook that I cut y'all off because one, there weren't, there was not like really any viewers on Facebook and the laptop fan was really annoying. I love you too, Saint Come, Saint Come. I don't know <laughs> which one is right, but you can correct me. Take care y'all. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks again for listening. Please remember to hit the like button and share this episode with a friend. I hope you can join us again for the next one.